According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs 13. We find ourselves in Proverbs 13 here for the past couple of weeks anyway. And um, we covered verses 7 and 8, and uh, we're ready to move on to verses 9 and 10 here this morning. Verses 9 and 10, if I have this correctly. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this morning and the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us into uh, all things, Father, the depths of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, Proverbs 13, and I think we dealt with the last of what we had in verses 7 and 8, just in case I'll bring it back up here, because we were talking about wealth and we were talking about how Scripture sometimes looks at wealth beyond the concept of wealth itself and uh, can envision wealth in a number of different capacities. And uh, in these verses, in fact, there are three things that we're looking at, that which can be seen, and of course the appearances which can be misleading. And then thirdly, what we spent the most of the time on is the true wealth, uh, which is that which eternal life uh, provides. So God through eternal life, uh, has blessed us abundantly. We are all the wealthiest people in the world because we're all recipients of God's eternal life. And uh, the blessings there just don't stop. (laughs) And so we have that there. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. And so you call yourself poor if you like, but you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there has been nothing uh, in the history of the universe so precious. And, uh, and that's what God spent to redeem you. And so we can appreciate that. And there's the aspect of value there. But the poor hears no rebuke. And that was the last that we looked at there. And so we had subpoints A, B, C, and D under this. We talk about apparent riches and how riches, earthly riches are uncertain and delusional. And uh, apparent poverty can hide true wealth. We've discussed that as well. The fact that we might be poor in, uh, in uh, earthly funds. That doesn't change our wealth in eternity. The ransom of a man's soul is his wealth, viewing that obviously on a salvation basis. And then finally the, the poor, that is the unsaved, has no ears to hear. And that, by the way, makes verse 9 or verse 8 synchronized with verse 1. Uh, where the, in verse 8 it's the poor hears no rebuke. In verse 13, the scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And so we can understand that as well. Um, If you're not saved, you don't have the ears to hear. And if you're just a scoffer, even if you are saved, uh, presently you're not humble under the Word of God. And so uh, in carnality, what are you going to understand? And uh, same thing that the unbeliever is going to understand. Nothing (laughs) when it comes down to it. All right, so that gets us then into light and life. And when we start looking at verses uh, 9 and 10, we have these aspects here of light and life. Light and life are common parallels in Scripture, and I give this to you under point seven. And we're going to be looking at these things. In fact, there was a whole lot more I had originally in here, and I took a lot of them out because I didn't want to distract from really the simplicity of what Proverbs is dealing with here. But uh, it says, the light of the righteous rejoices, or shines brightly. I prefer the shines brightly understanding. The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Uh, We're going to put verse 9 and verse 10 together. I think the poetry of the text lends itself to that. Verse, well, although, no, I've changed my mind on that as well. (laughs) Uh, A lot of these are just individual verses, and we're just going to take one verse at a time, one verse at a time, one verse at a time. And I think I left verse 10 as a separate point of study. Um, In any event, so let's just stop there with verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. We're talking about a light, we're talking about a lamp, we're talking in a metaphor here with respect to being alive. And when you die, your light goes out. 
when, uh, that is if you are not saved, when you die, your light goes out. Because this is the, the common grace God has supplied to all of humanity, the light of life. But uh, without eternal life, without the blessings of eternal life in Christ, that light does not go on. Uh, the destiny of the unsaved is the lake of fire, which is eternal darkness. And that's, uh, that's where they're headed. So we have quite a contrast here. Before we get to the details, though, um, other passages I think that speak to this include Psalm 27.1 and Psalm 36.9. So we can look at those. And then I tried to limit it. Maybe I wasn't so successful. I wanted to limit it to biological life, to being alive, to being human. Because when you get saved, then there's a whole another dimension of life that then is bestowed and a whole different dimension of light that is then bestowed and it becomes richer, becomes deeper, becomes eternal at that point. Remember, biological life is not eternal life. And so uh, we understand that for what it is also. All right, Psalm uh, 27 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And this one uh, kind of approaches what I'm talking about there where uh, is, he, is David talking about being saved exclusively? Is he talking about both? The Lord is my light and my salvation. And how do we, how do we take that? Do we take those as synonymous expressions or do we take those as is David celebrating being physically alive and being spiritually alive my light and my salvation so should we understand the light in the first place to represent the the light of of physical life and then beyond that salvation as well okay or is it better to take this as referring to just being saved Uh, either way whom shall i fear the lord is the defense of my life whom shall i dread and that clearly, I think, is with respect to dangers to physical life and those that want to kill him, and like King Saul did so many times. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Uh, you know, so there it is. God's in charge of that. And when my turn comes to go, it's my turn to go, and nothing's going to stop it. But if it's not my turn to go, then it's not my turn to go, and nothing's going to make it happen. <laughs> you know, and you can you can put a thousand soldiers against me, and and God's still in charge, and we can we can be thankful for that, as it says here. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rises against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. And this is the passage I gave to Sharon when I uh, shipped out to Desert Storm. And, you know, I'm not afraid of war, not afraid of dying. If, if, uh, you know, if I don't come back, well then, you know, we've, we were just engaged at the time and people were trying to get us to do some quickie wedding thing so she could collect life insurance when I died. And I uh, said, so, well, you know, God's in charge of that and uh, we'll just get married when we come back. And uh, that's what we ended up happening. But the point being is when, when you're in the will of God, how do you define danger? You know, you know, in some respects, danger is irrelevant. Danger is beside the point. It's, it's not pertinent to the discussion to being in the will of God or being out of the will of God as, as far as that goes. And so, you know, I'm not in any more danger on the battlefield than I would be in a public library or somewhere that you think is safe. If you're out of the will of God, you're out of the will of God. And if you're in the will of God, you're where you're supposed to be. So, um, Anyway, we have this here. I think the, the emphasis that's there in, uh, in verses 2 and 3 clearly is with respect to physical life. It's in with respect to uh, danger and enemies and those that want to kill you. Remember, those that want to kill you, that's all they can do. Okay, That's the worst they can do. Uh, yeah, that uh, you're going you're gonna to survive the, the death experience and move on to the next life. And that's, uh, that's an exciting thing as well. So... Uh, one thing I, verse 4 then, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. So uh, he's looking to the next life also. And so in the, in the meantime, that's where his eyes are focused, on the things of the Lord, on the Word of God. And uh, dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And, and amazingly, of course, David wasn't allowed to build the temple, so what's he talking about here? Is he talking about the old rotted tabernacle tent that was in such horrible shape he was offended and said I was, you know, he was going to build a temple? The Lord said, no, your son Solomon will build a temple. There was not a house of the Lord on earth during David's lifetime, is the point I'm trying to say here. And yet for David it was a reality. It was in heaven. The earthly thing was just a replica anyway. 
And uh, even as bad a shape as the tabernacle had fallen into, the tent of meeting, whatever the little remnant was that was still uh, erected at, at Shiloh or wherever, the, uh, the, the fact is the real house of the Lord was in heaven. And that's where David spent most of his time, just fellowshipping with the Lord in, in heavenly places, being a heavenly-minded Old Testament saint. And uh, to meditate in his temple. So, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me, he will lift me up on a rock. So, uh, I guess verse 6, now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So anyway, there's Psalm 27 verses 1 through 6, and I think it's marvelous. I think it addresses physical life and why we have courage and confidence even if we're facing danger to our physical life, even if uh, we're under threat of being physically killed. We can still, with with, uh, the light of life, we still have God's light, we still have the expectation that after this life comes the next. And so uh, we have, uh, you know, we have this kind of courage. And uh, any believer ought to have this kind of courage and expectation. All right, Psalm 36, another illustration. Psalm 36. And I've used it twice already, but we have this expression, the light of life. And um, often it's used exclusively for uh, being born again, having eternal life, being a saved one. But um, I, I think that there's a larger aspect of life where life itself is light. And uh, God said, let there be light as, as the preparation for preparing planet Earth for humanity. And that's not sun, moon, and stars till day four. Okay, There's light on day one. And uh, the light that is our lamp, which goes out when we die, when the unbeliever dies, that's a, a grace provision for all of humanity. All right. Psalm 36. Um, again, it's life and light, and there's a larger context with respect to this. Uh, for uh, Verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And so if you're not physically alive, how do you see God's spiritual light for, for eternal life? See, that's why this, this term light is not only exclusively used of being saved. Okay, we have, uh, and and I just want to make sure we're clear on this because um, all too often, I mean, it's good to break down bios life and zoe life. Everybody has bios life. We all have biology, right? So we were all born uh, with with biological parents, and we have biological life, right? And then when we place our faith in Christ, we receive eternal life. We receive zoe life, and it's useful in the Greek to have bios and zoe, to have two different words. That's very helpful for us. And, uh, and so it's, we can draw a clear line in the sand and we can put the unbelievers on this side and believers on that side and say, all right, here we go. Because we all have biology, we all have bios, but only with uh, when you're born again do you receive zoe. No unbeliever has zoe. They have bios, right? We have both, bios life and zoe life. And, uh, and so as we teach that, and, and the only kind of life that ever has the adjective eternal attached to it is Zoe life. Bios does not. So it's helpful to have that. But now when we come to another metaphor, now we come to light, all right, I think um, everything that we just mentioned that's useful for us, that's helpful, that we love, that we cling to, we have to maybe step back a little bit and say, now wait a minute, light if we, want to, if we want to limit light only to the Zoe kind of life, I think that's a mistake. Because I think that there is a light to the unbeliever as well. There is a light to being physically alive. That's called a light. And that's used in Scripture that way. When the light goes out, as we have in our verse today in uh, Proverbs 13, 9, when the light goes out, that's, a, that's a, a, an unbeliever that just physically died and his light went out. Okay. As opposed to a believer who dies, the light doesn't go out. The light shines brighter. <laughs> the light shines brighter because now the light is freed. It's no longer veiled in, in the flesh of mortality. It's now freed into the, uh, into the glory of, of Jesus Christ. All right. So, um, and in that dualism can be uh, thought of here also in verse 9 because in your light we see light. 
um, in, uh, in that context there. Now, do I want to back up and get some more of this? Um, and how much of this? <laughs> Let's see. Verse uh, 5, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. And so we're talking about how majestic he is and how high and how deep and and so forth. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And so the greatness of God that provides for man and beast alike, all right, the greatness of God that provides in this physical world, man and beast alike. We're not distinguishing between the saved and the unsaved. It's everybody. It's the loving kindness of God that is uh, gracious towards everybody. Any, the unbelievers in this world are still breathing God's air, right? They're still walking God's green earth. They're still drinking God's water. And, uh, and they see because of God's light. The God they deny and the God that they hate. <laughs> and they're still breathing His air and walking in His sunlight. So, uh, man and beast. Um, they drink their fill, verse 8, they drink the fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see, in your light we see light. Alright. Well, there it is. Um, originally too I had John 8 and I took it out. John 8, I am the light of the world and uh, the, the provision there. Uh, and, but that, I think, centered more on the Zoe life and the light, the abundant light that comes by being saved uh, was not necessarily supportive of, of the concept I'm trying to emphasize this morning where all of humanity has a light. All of humanity has this as the common grace God has bestowed humanity with, of, of being alive, of having this light. All right. The righteous have a light that shines brighter at physical death. All right, and that's where I stuck John 8. Okay. The righteous have a light and it does not get extinguished. You know, he who lives and believes in me will never die. And uh, we have that. We have that promise that even if we die physically, we still live. All the promises that come there in John 11 and other passages there. But the righteous have a light that shines brighter at physical death. It does not go out, it shines brighter. And uh, again, this is what we read in Proverbs thirteen nine: the light of the righteous, instead of rejoices there, it should be shines brightly, shines brightly. And Proverbs 4, 18. Backing up to Proverbs 4, we had a verse that addressed this. The um, path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, that shines brighter and brighter and brighter until the full day or until the perfect day. All right? And so using that image, using that, that metaphor then to express what does our light get brighter or does it go out? Okay? According to this, brighter, brighter until the full day, until the perfect day, until it reaches the maximum sunshine. See? And... Uh, you know, a grumbling skeptic would say, well, yeah, but then what happens? Then what happens? Then it starts getting darker and darker and darker until the sun sets, and then you're back to night again. It's just a, a big circle over and over and over again. Okay, 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 smarty pants. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse doesn't take the metaphor that far. This verse stops with the fullness of the day, and it calls it the perfect day. And so by stopping the metaphor there with the blazing sunlight and the maximum sunlight, we're talking the brightest day on the brightest day of the year kind of sunlight. That's the metaphor for you and for me. That's what we're headed for. And it's not the millennium, it's the fullness of time. All right, it's the perfect day. That's what we're looking forward to, eschatologically speaking. And so that's the path of the righteous. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And isn't that sad? Even though God has given them a light, the light of their humanity and the capacity to have their eyes open to see God's grace, to see God's glory, and yet men love darkness rather than light. And then they would rather walk in the darkness. They hate the light. See, 
And they would rather just walk in the darkness. They'd rather just substitute their own wisdom for God's wisdom and pursue those things as well. Okay? How about John 1, 4? Do we know John 1? I believe we do. The great in the beginning text. It's even earlier than the Genesis in the beginning text. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is eternity past when all there was was God in His eternal existence. And yet Father and Son had a fellowship existence between them. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. In Him was life. Now what are we talking about here? In Him was Zoe. Okay? And the Zoe was the light of man. Now when did Jesus receive that Zoe? Okay? And there's a question. Um, Hypostatic union. Deity, humanity. God God the Son, humanity. United together, one person forever. Which side of deity or humanity, who, who has the Zoe? Where does the Zoe sit? On the deity side or on the humanity side? Don't answer now, but find some verses and prove it. <laughs> All right. In him was life, and life was the light of man. It's connected to humanity. Okay? It's a provision for humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it. The darkness did not overpower it. You ever turn on a light switch and the light comes on, but it's just not strong enough to dispel the darkness? That's not how it works. Light comes on, the light comes on. And uh, it's kind of interesting, all right? Because darkness, technically, does darkness even exist? Is there such a thing as darkness? Or is it simply the absence of light? Is it a consequence of not having light that leaves darkness as as a non-existent thing? (laughs) All right. And so there it is. And, uh, and then the true light, this is the witness uh, sent, from heaven, uh, sent from God whose name was John, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And, and of course now this, as we start talking about the provision through Jesus Christ, we are looking to the, the Zoe life, we are looking to the light, the greater light that comes that unbelievers don't have, but we receive when we get saved. The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. All right. Any more there? I want to now I guess that's good for chapter one. We can get to chapter eight. You know, if every man is enlightened, does that include the unbelievers? Eight twelve. I'm asking a lot of questions this morning. Why, why? Woke up and got in an ornery mood. I don't know. All right, 8.12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the light of Zoe. All right. And, uh, and so there it is. So the light is shining. And who can follow? Who can see? Who can respond? Unless your theology demands that you can't. But for most understandings, yes. It's whosoever. It's whosoever. Um, all right, so there's the light. And we have that. We have that. Obviously, we have uh, the common light that all humanity has, believer and unbeliever alike. But when we do get saved, we receive the even greater light. And we receive a light that does not go out, a light that shines brighter and brighter, a light that though the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day the light that shines brighter and brighter unto the perfect day, we're told. And that's where we're headed. That's where all of us are headed in uh, that kingdom of glory. The wicked has a light, and I put it in quotes, because it is a light, but it's just not the same as our light. The wicked has a light in the glory of his physical life. By the way, 1 Corinthians calls it a glory. Calls physical life a glory. Calls mortality a glory. The wicked has a light in the glory of physical life, but it is extinguished at physical death. How sad is that? You know, uh, Adam became a living soul when the breath of lives was breathed into his body. 
And when the unbeliever dies and that soul departs the body, it's, uh, is, is it still a living soul? It's an eternal soul. It will exist for all eternity in the lake of fire. But it's no longer a living soul. How sad is that? All right. This light in the glory of physical life, but it is extinguished at physical death. So um, I did not include, let me grab, before we go to Proverbs, let's go to First uh, Corinthians 15. We know it well, it's easy to find. Because it's a description of mortal versus immortal. It's the contrast between mortality and immortality, this life and the next. kind of passage we emphasize at funerals or burials or celebration of life, memorial services, things of that nature. So in 1 Corinthians 15 we've got uh, the promise of the resurrection, the guarantee of the resurrection, the order of the resurrection, the uh, details of the resurrection. And uh, In verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. What a stupid question. (laughs) All right. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You're asking a question that's been answered ever since the beginning. God has designed the entire agricultural universe to explain uh, death, burial, resurrection. And so you don't plant an apple tree, you plant a seed. Um a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And so it goes on to describe this. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's a flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. And this is what it's designed to be. And there are actual differences in these bodies. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And uh, and I think in part too, uh, I think what medicine has tried to do, and they found struggles, right, with animal parts, trying to use pig valves and trying to use other things and putting them inside human bodies. And some they have less success and some they have more success and some they have no success and, and they've got rejection issues and they've got struggles and they're trying to figure out why. Well, in, a, in an evolutionary mindset, they can't understand why this is a problem. Aren't we all in the same tree of life? Aren't we all in the same, you know, circle of life? Aren't we all, you know, I mean, we're basically just hairless monkeys anyway, so let's... Uh, but see, it doesn't work like that. And Scripture says, wait a minute here. These are different kinds of flesh. Alright. So a flesh of men, a flesh of beasts, a flesh of birds, a flesh of fish. But there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. So don't think that it's only the heavenly bodies that have glory angels and resurrected humans, but it's also the earthly is a glory. One glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. If it wasn't perishable, it couldn't die and you wouldn't bury it. (laughs) Okay? Now, um, I asked you to think about this a few weeks ago. Uh, we a lot of times we read this, these passages and we we inject some theology in here that we got to stop and take a fresh read and say, wait a minute, should I inject that in there? Is this because of Adam's original sin that it's sown a perishable body and that it's raised an imperishable body, or was Adam's body already perishable even before he sinned? Is the, is the perishableness a consequence of his sin? Or was that the way it was designed from the beginning? Alright? And then ask yourself, am I injecting a concept here that should not be injected? So, in a sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. Because if, it, if, if perishability was the original design, then that's not a consequence of sin and that's not um, that's not, uh, I, I think we, we, we need to stop thinking of it in that way. So we go back to the Garden of Eden and we ask ourselves, you know, what happens if they don't eat? <laughs> they were told to eat, 
They were told to eat from any tree in the garden. They gave them all the food they could possibly want to eat. But what if they didn't? What would happen if they didn't eat? Would they get hungry? And if, would they starve? Could they die by not eating? What if he's climbing up a tree to get that, that apple and he falls? Would he get hurt? Could his body be subject to an injury? Did he get blisters when he was, when he was working the garden? Okay. See, and, and here's the thing. Most people think I'm, I'm insane for even bringing this up. See, well, that's stupid. That's crazy. You know, not until sin. There were no blisters before sin. All right, call me dumb, but show me the verse. All right. Anyway. So, um, <laughs> you know, just think about it. Is it really a consequence of sin? Is eating a consequence of sin? No, it was before sin. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. But we've already been told that it's a body of glory. But it's sown in dishonor because that glory went out. The glory ended. The, 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 uh, it died. That mortal body died. And as a dead thing, it's sown in dishonor. It's buried in dishonor. But it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Did, uh, is, is weakness, physical weakness, is that a consequence of sin? All right. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And that's what we come down to. If there is a natural body, and there is, there is also a spiritual body. Now if that's plan A, that's not God winging it after the fall. The, the order of natural body first, spiritual body after, that was the design all along. If there is, then there is also. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Alright, so this is the pattern here. I believe that uh, natural Adam in his sinlessness was mortal. Natural Adam in his sinlessness needed food. Natural Adam in his sinlessness required food. And had he not eaten, he would have physically died. Even as a sinless, uh, uh, innocent, uh, righteous human, he would have physically died had he not eaten in, uh, in that way. All right, other passages that talk about light going out include... Um, Proverbs 20.20 and Proverbs 24.20. So we can look at those. Hmm. You know there's a promise for honoring your father and mother. There's also a promise for cursing your father or mother. He who curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in a time of darkness. When, you know, when God chooses the circumstances that surround our physical death, and we all know we've got X number of days, we've got Y number of days, we've got Z number of days, uh, that God in His sovereignty has programmed in His will the, the, the course of our life. And we've got that X number of days, but He also includes variables. The, uh, the Y and the Z options whereby our time can be cut short through sin unto death, divine discipline, or the time can be extended through uh, the graciousness and mercy of God that will, uh, if you honor your father and mother, that uh, it will be, uh, you will live long on the earth. There's promises connected to that. And that's why I don't just teach X number of days, I teach X, Y, and Z number of days in, uh, in the plan of God, the contingent plan of God. And um, but when those days are shortened, or even if they're not shortened, when, let's just say that God sticks with X and we've got the, the basic number that, we're going, that He's going with for the end of our days, well, what is that day like? Is it a pleasant day or an unpleasant day? Is it a, a day of, of joy blended with the sorrow or is it just sorrow upon sorrow? Is it uh, 
Is it precious in the sight of the Lord is, is the death of His godly ones? Or is it, sorry pal, but this is going to be an unpleasant divine discipline experience. This verse promises that. This verse promises that His lamp will go out in a time of darkness. And um, that not only will He physically die, but the occasion will not be pleasant. The experience will not be pleasant. It will be uh, a time of darkness to match the lamp going out. Anyway, that's uh, not fun to think about, is it? You know, and and um, um, if you ever visit a nursing home, you'll see that. You'll see night and day. You'll see widely different perspectives from those that know Christ, from those that have the confidence and the assurance of eternal life, those that are facing their own mortality. And yeah, there can be some earthly sadness. There will be some earthly sadness. But there's not the bitterness and the ugliness and the resentments and, the, and the, just the ugliness that you see on the other side that are just waiting. They're already now shaking their fist at God and, and, and you know when, when their soul departs they're just uh, vile in, uh, in that ugliness. So described there. How about chapter 24 and verse 20? Context here. Um, oh, can't back up too far. But verse nineteen: Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. You know what does he have to look forward to? What is his destiny? Where is he going? And um, you know, it's it's uh, as simple as that. If um, if, if they seem to be getting away with whatever, they seem to be living this ungodly life and they seem to have it made, they seem to have all this money, they seem to be happier than anything, well, then you've, you've fallen for the external image. Remember? Wealth can be deceiving. All the appearances may not be what they appear to be. Do you know the, the ugliness of that soul? Can you look upon the, the misery of the darkness that they're walking in? Or because you've got that envy going on, you're walking in realms of darkness yourself, at least on a limited basis. <laughs> Do you really have the divine viewpoint to, to understand these things? Or are you just getting more and more jealous the more you're looking at, at uh, what He has? So, don't do that. Don't fret, don't be envious. For there will be no future for the evil man. What's his destiny? Separation from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. That light is done. Okay, it's almost like the um, the the Lazarus and the rich man story, right? Lazarus died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. How how wonderful is that? The rich man died and was buried. <laughs> Just okay, matter of fact. And that stark uh, contrast I find interesting. All right, so there's light and life. Verse 10, we get point 8. That's I thought I'd get those different points. Verse 10, we get point 8. Arrogance sparks conflict, reflecting the absence of God's wisdom. Again, back to Proverbs 13, we look at verse 10. Through insolence comes nothing but strife. And the aspect on arrogance that just wants to fight about everything, wants to argue about everything, wants to prove that they're right and you're wrong and stupid and here we go. Okay? And that's what arrogance does. And this reflects the absence of God's wisdom. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Alright? Wise enough, humble enough to listen to what the other person says, to not fight about it. To, uh, to be open to what God would make clear. Humble enough to say, oh, maybe you are right, let me take a look at that. And uh, not worth uh, getting mad over, not worth fighting over, not worth uh, the, the strife that uh, is being driven here. And so it's, uh, it's an interesting parallelism in, in, uh, in this poetry as well. Because we ha- we're contrasting insolence with wisdom, which is really a contrast of arrogance with humility, God's wisdom with Satan's wisdom. Really? So they got those two 
parallels that are going on. And, and that's common, where we have the first, the A part of a poetry, the B part of a poetry, and they don't seem to match. They do match. Just double it up and match them both. Okay? So the arrogance, you have humility, not stated, but we're including it. And God's wisdom, we have the world's wisdom. Not stated, but we're including it. Okay? That makes sense? I'm seeing some puzzled looks. Let's see if I can bring this up. All right. I was going to put my thing up here so I could draw for you. Dan used it so well. All right. So uh, in Hebrew poetry, we got an A line and a B line, right? And uh, a lot of times it's A and B or it's A but B, depending on whether it's uh, in agreement or opposites and that kind of thing. All right. And we have poetry of thought, poetry of concepts. And, and sometimes they're totally spelled out, and sometimes they're only half spelled out, but you have to supply the other half. And so uh, this is what we have here. And so we have arrogance in the first part. Through insolence or arrogance comes nothing but strife. Okay, So there's arrogance on the, on the first half. Down below we've got uh, wisdom is with those who receive counsel. And so here we have wisdom. Now, are those pure opposites or we have something else we're looking at here? See, and I think that's what we're dealing with. So we have now the unstated parallels because we can understand that this wisdom is expressed through humility. And that's the corollary to the arrogance. And we can recognize that this arrogance is expressed through what? Through the world's wisdom. All right. So you see how we did that? And we really have four things or two pairs that are being, that are being paralleled. Four pairs that are being contrasted. It's just that only two of them are stated. And it's left to us then to complete the uh, to complete the uh, crisscross, okay? I call it a crisscross. There's a theological term for it, but can't think of it at the moment. So that's what we deal with with respect to this. All right, and it's what we find in James chapter three. Complete agreement with Proverbs thirteen ten is James 3. And I know I go here a lot. You're probably tired of seeing it. Because um, it's not, we don't have an option to either follow God's wisdom or not. We're following one wisdom or another. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral we're either walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. We're either pursuing God's wisdom or pursuing the world's wisdom. There's no, there's no uh, middle ground. And so in James 3, we have um, in verse 13, "...who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom." And it's going to be very clear by how you conduct your life what wisdom you're pursuing. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. It's going to, be, it's going to become very clear to everyone with discernment that you're following the world's wisdom, not God's. And if you're lying about it, if you're trying to be you know, the hypocrite, if you're trying to, uh, to uh, put forth a pretense while the reality is just the opposite, uh, it's going to be exposed for what it is. Those with God's wisdom will see it as clear as anything. Because um, if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that's what we're talking about with the insolence from Proverbs 13.9, the arrogance there, the, the strife. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. 
Okay? And that's what we talk about with respect to the world's wisdom, this fallen world, as Satan promotes it, as the fallen angels, the demons promote it. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And that's what we were just reading, isn't it? From Proverbs 13, 9. The insolence of the, of the, uh, of the person there that leads to strife. Didn't we just read that? Or 13.10, rather. Through insolence comes nothing but strife. That's the world's wisdom here. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. And then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here comes Mr. Confrontational and Mr. Argumentative and Mr. Arrogant and all his worldly wisdom and he wants to start throwing all these things. And the humble person walking in God's wisdom is not going to play that game. Not going to respond in kind. Is not, uh, he's just as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men and say, all right, well, Here's how I understand it. And in my understanding of the Word of God, this is where it goes. And, and, and you see the difference? Because it's, it's sowing the seed of peace and it's reaping that harvest of peace. Anyway, it's bearing fruit. It bears a lot of fruit. And so I think we've got a, a great uh, benefit there. Then verse 11, under point 9. Yep, I gave all of these their own point. Verse 11. that's not it. Oh no! That's just a repeat of point seven. Cut and paste and didn't change it. All right, well. All right. Verse 10. We've got uh, wealth obtained by fraud, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. All right, so back to our diagram. And we'll make a new one. There we go. Now it works. Okay. Um, Now we make a new one. Fraud. Hard uh, labor. Are those pure antonyms? Are those opposites? Or might we have to kind of extend them a little bit to get a, a concept here that this is honesty, honest labor, in truth. And this is um, the opposite of labor. (laughs) This is um, the non-working I'm sorry? Sloth, Sloth, okay, yeah. Sloth. Scammer. Get-rich-quick schemes. You know, you can make money without working. (laughs) Oh, really? Tell me how that works. Okay. Um, the opposite of working, not working. Okay. Which could include theft, taking something you didn't work for, stealing. It could include uh, inheritance. What's wrong with an inheritance? Well, nothing wrong in itself, but you didn't work for it. Somebody else worked for it. So the value that comes through working, you didn't get. You got the wealth, you didn't get the value because you didn't do the work that produce that value. See the difference? And so you end up with a ton of, you know, um, rich kids that that inherited a a trust fund or whatever, and they got the wealth, they didn't get the value. And here's the, and so that it affects um, their outlook, it affects their understanding, it affects their their, uh, imaging of God responsibilities, because God's a worker. God's productive. And if, as we image God, we are to be productive. And if we're not producing, we're diminishing. And that's what this verse is, uh, is dealing with. And so we've got the fraud and honesty contrast. We've got the work and not work contrast. The working the, uh, with your own hands, your own production, your own hard-earned uh, production, and the value that comes through production. And so... In verse 11 it says, wealth by fraud dwindles. It's decreasing. But the one who gathers by labor, that is the one who works by hand, works with hand, 
the hands-on worker increases. So there's the dwindling and there's the increasing. And I got a lot of verses to go with that. <laughs> Just not on my slideshow. So uh, I guess that's the Lord's way to answer my question. Am I going to quit five minutes early or ten minutes early? Um, I guess we're done. So um, a sanctified typo. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. Every human being is a soul. And and if we're the living soul is clothed in a body. Yeah, the unbeliever who dies, his light goes out. He's no longer a living soul. His light goes out. And that soul goes to hell. It still exists. It's a dead soul that continues to exist. Yes. Right. Yeah, we that that confuses folks. Thank you. Uh don't don't equate living with existence. Because the dead continue to exist. They're spiritually dead, but it's still a living soul until it departs the body. And then it's a dead soul, dead spirit that continues to exist for all eternity. Yeah. No, no, that's good. That's good. That's a good reminder for me. I've got to be more clear on living versus existing. Because there's all kinds of dead people. We're surrounded by dead people. And they exist. They're spiritually dead. And they exist. And so when they, when they soulishly die, they will, they will have soul death, but they will still exist. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. The light that we have, I'm, yes, I, I think so, because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I think the, 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 the unbelievers are the demons and the fallen angels. They know we belong to Christ. Um, and it may be that light that we receive, that light of that Zoe life, that they can see that Zoe life. Uh, because we're, we're, they can't touch us. They can't indwell us. They can't possess us. Um, yeah, it may be. It's a good way to think of that. Have to chew on that. That's a good thought. The identification friend or foe. You know, we have an IFF radar that that sends a signal and reads the signal that uh, so we don't shoot down friendly airplanes. You know, uh, we know, hey, that's a friendly airplane or that's an enemy airplane. And if it if it can't return the right IFF signal, then it's it's um, it's it's an enemy airplane. And we want to shoot it down. Um, and, and I wonder, yeah, what kind of IFF does do the demons have? What kind of IFF do the fallen angels have? What kind of IFF are we going to have in the resurrection glory when we look upon someone we just immediately know? It's, it's staggering to, to think about. So. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Uh, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes to the Scriptures, answer our questions, Father, that we might walk more effectively before you to the glory of your Son. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.